You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steed-Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Richard Stengel, former diplomat and former Time managing editor to Washington Post Live, to talk about a new podcast he's put out, Mandela, The Lost Tapes. Rick, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Francis. Nice to be with you. And a word to our audience. As you know, you can tweet questions for Rick to us by tweeting them with the handle at PostLive. That's at PostLive. Thanks for joining the show, if you can. Rick, a first question for you. These tapes obviously were uh, based on the interviewing you did when you collaborated with Nelson Bandela for his autobiography in 1993, I think it was a 1994 book. How did you get to be in that position of spending hours and hours and hours taping Nelson Mandela right before he became president? Well, it was a bit of an accident, Francis. Um, I had written a, a previous book about South Africa called January Sun. And he uh, he had been signed up by Little Brown, the American publisher, which was part of Time Inc., where I worked as a kind of junior reporter in those days. And 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 the previous collaborator, who was who was a peer of Mandela's and a great uh, South African novelist, it hadn't worked out. And then the publisher of Little Brown wanted like an American journalist who understood deadlines and could produce copy <laughs> to to get it done. And he had read my book, and he called me and made me the proverbial offer you can't refuse. So you headed down there and you spent all this time. Characterize the time you spent with Mandela. What was it like? What, 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 you spent hours with him. You must have been really absorbed into his life. Well, we, we, we met officially two or three times a week early in the morning at about 6.45, either at his Johannesburg office, which was the ANC office, or his home, uh, in in Houghton, which was a suburb of Johannesburg, or in the Transkei, where the you know the rural area near where he was born, but within a couple of weeks, he invited me to go with him on different things. He invited me to go down to the Transkei. He invited me to go on a trip. He invited me to a wedding, and I basically just started hanging around as much as I could, you know, hoping he wasn't going to kick me out of there. So uh, we did about seventy hours of official interviews over eight or nine months. But I tried to hang around with him as much as possible, and I did spend a lot of time with him, and it was just an incredible pleasure to be around him. You know, you're living history because things were changing in an extraordinary way, and just to be sort of in his orbit was a fabulous thing. Rick, we already have an audience question that I'd like to read to you. It comes from David Terrell from Illinois, who wants to know, what is your most enduring memory of Nelson Mandela? You know, it's just hard to think of just one. Um, I have so many. Um, I, I In the podcast, I talk about the day of our last official interview. Now, I knew I would see him again many times and did, but it was sort of our last official time together. And he wasn't a physical man in the sense that he sort of touched people. And at the end of the interview, I stood next to him and he put his arms around me. And then I really, hugged him for dear life. And it was a very memorable moment. And I thought of, you know, I thought of all the men, all those decades who were in that position, who were hugging him in, in terrible circumstance, you know, maybe about to die or about to send to prison or who knows mm -hmm. what. And 
And I could tell he just, you know, he took it in. He understood that his role. And um, that's maybe my most enduring, lasting memory of him. So autobiographies are really about sort of often about burnishing somebody's memoirs, right? Or, or their reputations or, or shaping it for a public. Were there things that he didn't want you to include or was there a way he really wanted to be perceived by this broader audience you were taking him to? Yeah, so Francis, remember, at the time we were doing this, it was about the thousand thing he should have been doing. He was trying to prevent his country from having a civil war. He was writing the constitution. He was getting ready to run for president. So I think they saw this as that kind of classic presidential biography or autobiography. And there were things that he asked me not to talk about. Um, you know, he, he was very uncomfortable talking about the divorce from his first wife. And, and you hear in the podcast him saying to me, I don't want to talk about that. You know, my people are not interested in that. And we get in a little bit of an argument about that. But for the most part, he, you know, what you see is what you got with Nelson Mandela. And all that time of all those interviews, he never once said to me, let's go off the record on this, or I want to be on deep background about this, or please don't say this. I mean, he just, he, he was very direct. And um, so even the, even the people he was critical of, like uh, Mr. DeClerc or uh, Mangasutu Budalese, you know, he does it in the mildest way. Um, so it, it was, you know, he wasn't an easy interview because he wasn't really introspective. He didn't really understand the power of anecdotes. I, th we, we, I think we also have in the tapes me saying to him something you will appreciate as a journalist, Francis. I'd say like, Madiba, you know, books need color, examples, <laughs> you know, anecdotes, emotions. And he and and he just he wasn't like that. He was a he was a Victorian. And um, so he didn't really let it all out in that way. So now, you know, we have this memory of this this mild mannered grandfatherly man who so much took over the world stage. But what if you were to correct people's misperceptions about him? What would they what would you tell them? What what are we missing now that you're able to bring through these podcasts and your knowledge of him? Well, one of the things we we really try to emphasize in the podcast is the fact that, yes, you have this image of him as this kind of kindly Santa Claus figure. But he was a democratic revolutionary. He started. The armed wing of the African National Congress, his party, because he decided that that uh, uh, nonviolent protest not only wasn't working, but the government was responding with violence and they had to respond in a like way. He was an incredibly gentle man. So that he didn't come to that decision easily. But one of the things you hear is him talking about that. And he says, for Gandhi, who spent 20 years doing nonviolent protests in, in South Africa, he said nonviolence was a principle. For me, it was a tactic. And when a tactic's not working, I abandon it. And that's why we abandoned nonviolence. So he was a, you know, he was a rugged revolutionary. He was underground for years. Uh, he learned how to use weapons. He learned how to make pipe bombs. I mean, he's not the Santa Claus figure that most people see. Well, I want to move to listening to him, and this is particularly special for me. I was invited to a gathering. You may have been there in the early 2000s when he was invited in the sound system, let us all down, but people were spellbound by his presence. So let's hear from him now, part of the podcast, about an early incident that led to his arrest. Yeah, I had a revolver 
which was unlicensed sometimes, just took it out and put it in between the seats. That's Nelson Mandela. He's talking about the time he was driving down a hill with a gun and got stopped by the South African security police. And uh, at one time, I thought I could open the door fast and roll down. But I didn't know how long, you know, this bank was and what was there. I was not familiar with the landscape. Mandela could always think on his feet. He'd only had the gun a few weeks. He was young and fit, but didn't know the countryside or what was beyond that hill. When that Ford V8 pulled in front of his car outside of Harrick Falls, South Africa, on August 5th, 1962, Mandela knew instantly what had happened. He was caught. Rick, tell us a bit more about the cir- circumstances surrounding this very dramatic mm. moment and what he told you about it afterwards. Yes, yeah, so he had just returned from his first and then only trip to the rest of Africa to raise money for Mkantuwe Siswe, and he'd been given a gun by Haile Selassie and 200 rounds of ammunition, and he had gone to Durban, and then he was summoned back to Johannesburg, and he was driving in a car. He was pretending to be a chauffeur, uh, of course, because it was unusual for a black man to have his own car back in those days. and um, and. Suddenly, these uh, police cars headed him off on this kind of small road near Howick Falls. And the, the backstory of the story, which we do talk about in, in the podcast, is that it's very, very likely, and I believe it's true, that the American CIA tipped off uh, South African police officers as to his whereabouts. There was a confession of a, of a, uh, of a now uh, deceased uh, CIA officer who was working at the U.S. consulate in Durban, that he had an underground spy within the ANC. And, and you also hear in the podcast me ask Mandela about that, about saying, you know, the, there's a story that it was the CIA. And he gives a kind of beautifully Mandela-like answer, which is, I've heard that. I don't know if it's true. And I don't care. So, uh, but we care. And at any rate, we, we do investigate it a little bit more in the podcast. Did he have any idea at the time, do you think, that it would lead to a 27-year imprisonment? Well, I think he did. I mean, what you also hear in the podcast is he had spent the previous two years underground in a, in a place called Lily's Leaf Farm outside of Johannesburg, this uh, you know, pretty farm uh, that was owned by a white ANC member. And he had you know, all of his papers there, all of the books he'd been reading about guerrilla warfare, you know, the guns and the air rifles that he was practicing with. And so he knew when he was caught that all of that stuff was probably available to the South African police. And when he was arrested and taken to Johannesburg, he heard, it's a lovely story, he heard somebody coughing in the next cell. And it was his great comrade, his real mentor, Walter Sosulu, and as soon as he heard Walter Sisulu coughing, he knew that they had raided Lily's Leaf Farm and had all the evidence they needed to try him and convict him of treason. I want to play a little bit more of, the, of, of his voice again. And this comes from his, about his hearing before he went into prison. Mandela walked into court that first morning wearing a karas, a traditional one-shoulder cloak worn by African kings, a beaded necklace and a shoulder bracelet. Suits and ties were the white man's uniform, 
Mandela wanted to be the proud symbol of African history. It was uh, to assert myself to go to a white man's court as an African wearing my own uh, outfit and not the one that is desired by the court. Yes. Um. It was an assertion of nationalism, of African nationalism. Mm -hmm. The prison authorities understood its power and tried to take the cross from him. They called it a blanket. It was part of their arrogance because uh, when I appeared in this carros, it created quite a stir. Yes. Because it also meant a contempt for the court. This is such a very, very powerful visual symbol. But tell us more about the significance of his decision, this assertion of African nationalism. Yes, I mean, he was, I believe, first and foremost, an African nationalist. He was a lot of other things. And he always saw the ANC as a large umbrella organization for African freedom and African rights. And so uh, the actual backstory of the, of the story that you hear him tell is that he needed something to wear in court. And Winnie, his wife, had packed a suitcase to, to be brought to the court. And she had packed the karas and the beads and that African outfit. He had no idea that, that that was going to be in there. And, you know, when he put it on, you know, he was a magnificent looking man to begin with. I mean, it, there are pictures of him wearing it. I mean, it really is extraordinary. And, and that was a symbol, as he said, of African nationalism. He had been a, himself a kind of a Beau Brummel. He loved wearing bespoke three-piece suits. But when he appeared that day, it did shock people. And it did remind his followers of the traditions of African leadership, which he devoutly believed in. And um, it did cause quite a stir, as, uh, as he said. I want to ask a little bit more of, the, of this, this narrow line he, he had to, to, to make for himself between people on the right who thought he was a, you know, a dangerous troublemaker and on the left who thought he was not pushing hard enough. And here he was wearing this costume. And yet we think back of this, of this figure as a man of restraint, somebody who did not seek revenge, somebody who moderated always. How does this all fit together? Is that the man you know, or was he really more radical than, than he liked to be seen later? So in the uh, podcast, Francis, he has a love, there's a lovely section where he, I asked him about what was he like before he went into prison? And he says, you know, I was a rough character. I used high-flown language. I I pushed people off the podium. I was not under control. And now, does anybody recognize that person? Of course not. No. But what happened to me was the 27 years in prison acted as a kind of crucible that melted away all the impurities in his personality. It gave him this incredible self-discipline, iron self-discipline, iron self-control. You know, I, when we did our interviews, I used to pin a little uh, microphone on his collar in the morning. And I, and I remember it was kind of uncanny because he was so still. He was like a statue. And I realized that's what prison did to him because you had to be able to control your own body. People were manhandling you. So it, it created the Nelson Mandela that emerged from prison, which is the Nelson Mandela we know. But that younger Nelson Mandela who joined the ANC Youth League was, was much more of a kind of a, a emotional, tempestuous character than the man who emerged. So this personal restraint we got to, became so familiar with, what impact do you think it had on the development of South African politics? 
Well, you know, as you know, there's kind of a debate going on in, in South African politics now and uh, about Nelson Mandela and his legacy. And he saw there were, I mean, were A, his great goal, which he never took his eye off, is bringing freedom to his people, bringing democracy to South Africa. But there were two ways of going out that. One was making sure that that there was no civil war, that that white South Africans bought into this new dispensation, but at the same time trying to lift up the economic uh, quality and, and class of black South Africans. It's hard to do both at the same time. And the criticism of him now is that he spent too much time placating white elites and not enough of time uplifting the black masses. He tried to do both at the same time, but he also thought, and I and I saw this and I was with him when different things happened, that that if he didn't make sure the, the white supremacist right wing in South Africa uh, you know, was was kept kind of contained, he really thought there could have been a, a, a real devastating racial civil war where hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives. You know, this 27-year imprisonment, of course, had a huge impact on his own personal relationships. And I'd love to play another clip now about his relationship with Winnie, who you've mentioned, his wife, um, and what prison did to that. Well, uh, you know, I was thinking of her, of course, every day. And uh, also, I wanted uh, to give her encouragement to know that there is somebody somewhere who cares for her. Yes. Uh, well, that, that was obvious. That's obvious from the letters. How do you, you yourself deal with the idea that your wife, that you're sentenced to life in prison? You're gone for many, many years. She has a life outside. She meets other men. What, what, uh, it must be very difficult to, to, to think about that, that perhaps she, uh, you know, meets other men that she might like or might take your place temporarily. How, how did you deal with that? Well, uh, that was a question, you know, which uh, one had to wipe out of his mind. Mm -hmm. You must remember I was underground for almost two years before I went to jail. I took a deliberate decision to go underground. And uh, in other words, uh, what uh, those issues were not material issues to me. And then one had to accept the human issue, the human fact, the reality that uh, a person uh, will uh, have times when he wants to relax and uh, one must not uh, be inquisitive. It's sufficient that this is a woman who is loyal to me, who supports me and who comes to visit me, who writes to me. That's sufficient. And then everything else, you that's sufficient, and you put the other things out of your mind oh, yes. because they're not important. Yes. And it doesn't alter her relationship to you and no. her relationship to no. her. Rick, I find this also very poignant. You were there. Mm. You said you began tagging along with him in many events. What was Mandela alike among the people he loved, and how did he balance the incredible growing political pressure on him with those personal relationships? Yes, it's not easy. I mean, he he once said to me when we were out walking early in our relationship, he said, many people love me from afar, but very few from up close. And he, you know, 27 years in prison can obviously end almost every relationship you had outside of prison. I mean, it's so poignant when he's talking about Winnie, because at that time that he's talking about her, 
he was separated from her and he had publicly separated her from her about six months before in one of the most painful sequences I've ever seen where he talks about how how difficult it was for him. Yet when he's talking about her, he goes back to that time in their relationship when they were in love, when they were happy, when he was supportive of her. And at the same time, you just see how his incredible self-discipline, how hard-headed he was to say like, look, I, you know, the, the most important thing was the struggle. Uh, you know, and, and he always said to me, too, and I don't think we have this on the tape because it didn't come out that well. He always said to me, he thought she had it harder than he did. And here's why. Because she was harassed by the police night and day. She was in and out of prison. And she had to try to raise their two daughters all at the same time. He thought that was much worse than his life, you know, in on Robin Island, uh, where, you know, he had three meals taken care of every day and a roof over his head. I always laugh because Walter Sisulu, his great comrade, used to joke, I haven't had a good night's sleep since I left prison. <laughs> Rick, I want to bring us up to date. You call these the lost tapes. To what extent were they lost and why now? What is that particular resonance in this political and social moment? Well, Francis, they were never technically lost. They were in my attic for many, many years, and I'd sort of forgotten about them. After we did them, I just had transcriptions made. And when I worked on the book, I worked from the transcripts. In 2010, I went to South Africa and gave the physical tapes to the Nelson Mandela Foundation, actually gave them, physically handed them to Nelson Mandela. And they own them, but then they also had them in their basement for a while. So it was only when we're on the eve of the 10th anniversary of his death, which is which is next year, just in a few weeks. And, you know, as the Washington Post has been reporting everybody else, I mean, democracy is under threat all around the world, including in the United States. And he is the greatest model of democratic revolutionary change, maybe in history. And I think his example, his focus, his humanity, uh, his concern for what that new dispensation is with giving people their rights is something that's really important to hear now. And it's always important to hear, but it's particularly important now, I would say. Let's just focus a little bit on South Africa's political development in this last decade. What do you think Mandela would make of it? So, you know, they're going through a lot of problems. There's been a lot of corruption in the ANC since uh, he stepped down that They've governed more or less like a one-party state. Um, you know, one of the things we've seen since World War II is the difficulties that countries have transitioning from an authoritarian type of government to a democratic government. Um, they don't have the institutions. They don't have the norms that support a, a democratic governance. That's exactly what's happened in South Africa. There's so a lot of mirroring of national party corruption under apartheid with what the ANC has done now. So. I think he would be disappointed in that. Remember, when he went into politics, politics was about sacrifice and going to prison. Now, you know, going into politics and sometimes it's about power and and self-enrichment. So I don't think he would like that. Um, the current president, who's also been under a, a cloud of scandal, Cyril Ramaphosa, was one of his very close colleagues after he got out of prison. He Cyril was the leader of the National Union of Mine Workers. He'd stayed in South Africa, fought apartheid for many years. He loved Cyril. He thought Cyril was 
an incredibly competent and capable leader, and in fact, wanted Cyril to succeed him. So, um, you know, Cyril may or may not become the president for a second term. We'll see. Um, he famously did not accept a second term himself. That's a sort of a part of American mythology as well, going back to George Washington, not accepting a kingship, bowing away, going back from positions of power. Do you think again that has resonance today? And what would he think again about moving back to his own love of gardening, his own love of home? Yes. I mean, that decision, Francis, to only accept one term when he could have taken two on a continent where uh, you know, leaders of countries and revolutionary leaders of countries have become dictators and, you know, they leave only when they're in a horizontal position was an incredibly powerful example for the rest of Africa. And um, I, I think in some ways it, it, it was maybe the most important presidential, presidential decision he ever made to show people that, that power in and of itself is not something that should should govern every decision that you make. So, um, you know, South Africa since then has had two-term presidents. Um, you know, they've, they've abided by their very democratic, modern uh, constitution. Um, I'm hoping that they will, you know, they'll revert to that kind of Mandela model. Um, you know, their institutions are getting stronger. Their their judicial system is getting stronger. They have a they have a long way to go, but but democracy is a whole lot better than the alternative. Right, one last question. What do you think political leaders today, and you've sort of been saying this, but sum it up, what political can political leaders today learn from Nelson Mandela's legacy? I think they can learn that self-control, impulse control, and even temperament is very important. And one of the things was that he was schooled in, in the African style of leadership, which is much more about consensus than Western style of leadership. He grew up uh, raised by the king of the Tembu people, and he, he watched as the king would hear everybody speak and then try to find some consensus. I think one of the problems in our very polarized soci society is that people don't seek consensus. And I think leaders can, can take the model of Nelson Mandela, and by the way, if there was ever a polarized society, it was apartheid South Africa. He managed to find a new dispensation. That's a great model for everybody. Finding consensus, a great model for everybody. Uh, Rick Stengel, thank you so much for joining me today on Washington Post Live. Thank you, Francis. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.